Breakthroughs from labs that are exclusively or mostly focused on research tend to stay buried as papers. Sometimes the lag is natural. The research is far ahead of its broad applicability. But we find that there are hundreds of breakthroughs useful long before they reach users. It can take many years, even decades before breakthroughs are realized in products that improve people's lives. This is massively inefficient. Research has to be coupled closely with development and deployment so that we can iterate through the cycle quickly and build good products that actually solve problems for people. Protocol Labs is a research, development and deployment lab for network protocols. Their projects include IPFS, Filecoin, LibP2B and many more. Jeremy Johnson is a distributed system researcher focused on incentive mechanism design and trustless distributed system scalability. He joins us today to share how Protocol Labs is spearheading the innovation in Web3. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. We've done a few shows on Filecoin and Protocol Labs and IPFS. The thing I'd like to start by talking about is usage. So the necessity for a totally decentralized storage system is pretty obvious when it comes to thinking about Web3. The basics of Filecoin and IPFS have been in place for a while. And I guess I'd like to get a sense for the abstractions as of 2022 the abstractions that are being built on top of that storage primitive and what you're seeing in the wild in terms of actual applications. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because a lot of people, you know, the majority of people interacting with IPMS and Filecoin really just want something that feels like what they're used to. There are a number of people who are really diving in, they're running their own infrastructure, they're doing their own you know, peer-to-peer, CDN, deploying things in different, you know, locations around the world. But most people just want to be able to say, upload file, make a backup, and, you know, I can download it later. And, like, towards that, we've been building several different, you know, front-end type interfaces and, you know, API interfaces to Filecoin and IPFS. Notably, the one I've been working on is called Estuary. And the way this manifests is just a very simple... HTTP upload API. We handle taking the file in from the user and then shuttling it off to Filecoin. And this does mean that for some period of time, there is like a dependence on a centralized service for the data being uploaded. But once it's there and on Filecoin, it's not like owned by you know the service. It's stored in a centralized network and you can retrieve it yourself. You can maintain the data yourself if you so choose. And that seems to be, you know, getting a lot of people excited about it because it makes it feel just like throwing things onto S3. Is it API compatible with S3? It's not right now. We've been thinking about adding, you know, a portion of the API that mimics the, you know, S3 surface area. But I think, you know, that it totally could. Is there a potential for the IPFS storage layer to be cheaper bucket storage than S3? Oh, absolutely. I think that's the biggest thing we've noticed about Filecoin is that the bulk storage prices that we are getting with the storage providers are significantly cheaper than S3, like effectively free for most 
sizes of data at this point. I expect that to normalize a bit as the market, you know, expands. But given the block reward subsidy of Filecoin, miners, you know, storage providers just want more user data and they're willing to give like crazy discounts of, you know, 100x to 1000x cheaper than S3 just to get that data onboarded. Walk me through the life cycle of a write to IPFS in 2022. Yeah, so to IPFS specifically, it's a write to IPFS is kind of an interesting concept because IPFS mostly weirdly doesn't describe a storage protocol. It describes a file transfer protocol. And so the most common thing that people see when they are like adding content to IPFS is they're either using their own IPFS node, which is effectively just indexing it like you're making it available over the internet and not actually uploading it to anywhere, or you're using a pinning service, which is you know, putting it into somebody else's IPFS node. And this is different than the flow for Filecoin, where with Filecoin, you're actually, if you want to do it manually, you are uh, selecting which storage providers you would like to host your data, You know, probably by using a, a reputation system or by having some pre-selection you know, which providers you want to use and negotiating a a price and making an on-chain contract with them for the storage of your data. And that ends up with your data ending up being stored and secured on the blockchain, as opposed to, you know, IPFS is really the default doesn't necessarily store your data. It makes your data available, if that makes sense. Yeah, maybe you could go into that a little more in a little more detail. So if I want to actually treat the storage medium that IPFS provides as, you know, actual usable storage for my application, maybe you can talk through the the API that I'm actually going to be using. It really depends on what your goals are. So the average case is going to be somebody is using a pinning service of some kind, whether this is you know, Pinata or Estuary or Web3 Storage. This is effectively outsourcing the actual persistence layer of your data to somebody else. And that really feels like a basic file upload, or it looks like you are adding your data to IPFS locally and then asking one of these services to pin it for you. The main thing there is you can entirely self-host it. You can run your own IPFS node on your server and you can add your data to it. But then if nobody else is hosting the data and your node goes offline, then it you know, becomes unavailable until your node comes back online. However, if you, know, you can run your own server and pin it somewhere else, and then you gain the, um, the performance of if either of them are online, your data is online. And you, can, you get the ability to set your own replication for the availability of your data, which is a really interesting concept. And anybody, like, say you're, what the stuff you're uploading is, you know, interesting to other people, they can choose to also provide a copy to the network. And that makes it even more resilient. So the files that I would upload to IPFS, how many times are they replicated? Or can you describe the way that the replication works and explain I mean, we've, we've talked about the, the incentive design on previous episodes, but maybe you could talk about how the incentive design has changed over time. Yeah, so 
IPFS itself doesn't actually provide replication. As I mentioned, like IPFS, just speaking about IPFS as a protocol, is a, a way of moving data from point A to point B efficiently, or you know, moving data from somewhere to somewhere else efficiently, and you know, referencing that data. With IPFS, you can specify like you can ask certain you know other parties to replicate your data for you, and that's kind of on a a one-off basis, you can pick a, a pinning service for that. But in the Filecoin case, you can, you as the user are in charge of the replication. So you can say, make deals with five storage providers or 10 storage providers or only three. And in the default, like bare bones, you're in control of your own destiny case. That looks like you uploading the file to each of the storage providers that you would you know want to use for replication of that data. You can also use you know, an intermediary that manages that replication for you. And it really just depends on how, you know, how in control of your own data do you want to be. Okay. So if I do want to have that storage replicated, let's say, 10 times, and I want to pay on an ongoing basis to have that replication factor, how am I doing that? Yeah. So there's a number of different ways you can go through the default, like, you know, Lotus Filecoin client and, you know, select a storage provider or 10 storage providers and then individually make storage uh, contracts with them. And then you're effectively done. You know, you have the contracts are for kind of a fixed term. So at the end of the term, you have to renegotiate the deal with, you know, current pricing. And so you'll pay for the storage effectively once per year, year and a half, depending on how long of a initial contract you made. Beyond that, one of the things we're excited about being able to do is we are going to be shipping a virtual machine in Filecoin soon, and you'll be able to have you know a smart contract on Filecoin that manages all of this for you. So whereas right now, you kind of have to pay attention to the individual replication of files and worry about renegotiating deals over time, once the virtual machine upgrade happens you'll be able to have a single smart contract that can manage all the replication for all of your storage, which should you know, dramatically simplify the process for the average user. So you said I'm paying for it. Who am I actually paying? You're paying the storage providers directly. So when you find a storage provider on the network, you reach out to them you know, through the peer-to-peer network and make a deal directly with them. It gets brokered by the blockchain and enforced by the blockchain because the actual storage proofs get periodically published to the chain you know, by the miners as they're showing that they have the data. And as long as they are correctly showing they have your data, they continue to get paid. And if they lose your data, then the, re- the remainder of the funds get uh, refunded to you and the miner is penalized for that. How do my storage providers prove that they have my data? Yeah, this is actually kind of the most fundamentally fascinating piece is they are proving that they have basically on chain, the hash of your data gets registered. And it's a very specific hash. It is a very snark friendly hash. And so once per day, miners are submitting a ZK snark proof that they have probabilistically all of the content for all of the hashes that they've committed to on chain. And so effectively, you have once per day, the miner is submitting a proof to the chain 
that they could not have produced if they didn't have your data. And what are the mechanics behind that proof system? So for the uninformed listeners of who don't know what snarks are, a snark is a way of doing a zero-knowledge proof, effectively running some code over potentially private data and being able to hand somebody a succinct statement that proves the thing you did was done correctly. So you can use this to prove knowledge of something. You can prove that you know a secret without revealing what the secret is. And the way we use this in Filecoin is we have all of, you can think of each proof as addressing, you know, all of the data that's there. And we use randomness from the chain to select pieces of that file of the corpus of data for the miner to show that they have. And the usual way you would do this is you take all of the data and you build a Merkle tree of it, which is kind of hashing each of the small components of the data together recursively until you get a single root hash that references the whole thing. And now to prove that you have the data, you can provide a a path of the hashes through this like Merkle tree. And the reason this convinces you that the person has the data is that they could instead store all of the hashes in order to respond to the proof. But then they would also at that point have still have to have the very bottom leaf that actually contains the raw data. And so like doing so would, you could potentially cheat this occasionally, but doing so requires storing significantly more data and is impractical. So the miner ends up creating this proof that is fairly large on its own because it's, you know, it is a piece of this giant hunk of data that they're storing, you know, terabytes or petabytes or larger of data. And then using these zero knowledge proofs, they create a proof that verifies that this Merkle tree is correct. And the cool thing here is the snark proves that they verified it correctly which means that it is correct. And in doing so, we're not really using the snarks to hide information. We're using the snarks to compress the information that uh, that the proof is correct. I'm trying to think if I'm explaining this properly, but how does that sound? It sounds good. So did the original version of proof of replication, did, did the original version use snarks? The original version of proof of replication did use snarks, but the things that came before it for earlier versions of Filecoin did not. Early versions of Filecoin, like the versions that were not implemented, they wanted to use effectively passing of data around and just using basic retrievability proofs to prove that miners had the data. And one of the big problems with the earlier constructions is that they required a lot of uh, bandwidth consumption to be passed around. So, you know, you had to move tons of data around to prove that you had it. And that proved to be fairly impractical, which is why we ended up having to go back to the drawing board a little bit to figure out how to, you know, build the system and gain the same level of assurance over the data without the bandwidth costs. And so Snarks came in here as an, like a really amazing tool to not only like, you know, hide the data, but to compress computation effectively. The reason I asked is I, I just I was curious about upgrading a decentralized system. Maybe you could talk through, we could get into some of the software development details of how a protocol actually gets updated. 
you know, we've done lots of shows on continuous delivery. Can you talk through how an actual software update to a decentralized storage system works? I think there's two different cases here, which are both really interesting. The case of IPFS is that it's not strictly necessary that everybody runs the exact same version of the software. The way that we've designed IPFS and the underlying components of like libp2p and IPLD and multi-formats allow things to be self-describing and protocols to be self-describing so that we can continue to have very seamless backwards compatibility across versions while new things happen. So when we're shipping a new version of IPFS, say one of the more recent versions where we switched the default networking protocol to Quick from TCP. This was very seamless because by the time we actually shifted it over, a lot of the previous versions had support for Quick. They might not have necessarily chosen it as their default, but they had support. And so even if not everybody in the network updated, you still had a lot of connectivity. The new nodes still supported the old protocols. The old nodes can talk the you know, new protocols, and then the old, old nodes, you know, that only supported the TCP-based protocols, they are still able to communicate with the newest nodes because the newest nodes have fallbacks. And since everything is negotiated through libp2p, you have this nice seamless connection layer where it doesn't really matter if people are running old versions, you know, they're obviously getting worse performance and they're missing out on bug fixes and so on. But the actual upgrading of the network is kind of a slow roll of people updating things as they need to and when they remember to. So it's kind of like both easy and hard to manage updates in a network like IPFS because on one hand, you can just ship new updates whenever you feel like it. New you know, people might not update to it, but you can do it and it doesn't actually cause problems. The downside of that is, you know, if there's bugs or if there's like any, you know, critical network problems, getting the whole network to upgrade is extremely difficult because most people run their software once and forget about it and convincing them to update is nearly impossible. I think last time I looked, we still had people running like a five-year-old version of IPFS. And I don't know what to do about that, but it's they're there, they're running it. They seem to be enjoying it for some reason. Then on the Filecoin side of things, you do need everybody to be running the same version of the software. Otherwise you can't, with you know, blockchain protocols, you have to run the same version of the code in order to come to consensus on the state of the chain. And this makes things very tricky because, you know, you can't just ship updates quickly because you have people all over the world with this software running and with lots of money depending on the software. So when we're deploying updates for Filecoin, it's usually communicated, you know, months in advance, a specific date and specific time that everybody has to be updated by if you don't update, you will actually risk losing money, especially, you know, as a miner. And so these updates are, you know, planned months in advance. They have release candidates that are, you know, ready to go significantly ahead of time. And there's tons of communication with the community, you know, broadcasting on Twitter and through all the communication channels we have to alert people that, hey, this upgrade is coming, you need to update. And if they don't, they can be left behind. But for the most part, you have this nice feature where since there is money on the line for a lot of the participants, people pay attention enough that they see this and they update in time. And it mostly goes well. You just have to be careful to not do it too often. Otherwise, it's pretty annoying to people. 
to have to update like once a month because there's new improvements or whatever. Most people don't actually care about improvements. They want the software to just do the thing and work. So in that discussion, you had some mention of the relationship between miners and the actual protocol developers because the miners have to make a decision to update their nodes with the most recent version of the protocol. And makes me think a little bit more about just the economics of being a miner. And I'd love to know if I'm a miner and I'm choosing between mining Filecoin and mining some other currency, presumably you have to make it, somehow you have to make it competitive with the other currencies that they could be spending their their bandwidth mining. What happens when it becomes non-profitable or less profitable to mine Filecoin than some other system? Is, do you have some self-corrective mechanism? Yeah, it is interesting because like mining Filecoin is a very different task than most other cryptocurrencies. It feels most similar to a proof of stake, but even then it's quite different. And the main reason for that is miners in Filecoin are storing users' data. And they're doing so on like very long-term contracts, you know, year, year plus. Like right now we have the maximum length of an individual contract fixed to a maximum of a year and a half. But even then, if a miner decides they want to stop mining, if they don't want to be heavily penalized, they have to wait until all of their contracts expire. And this means that, you know, if there's a temporary reduction in profitability, they have to wait it out. And this does change the calculus for a lot of people of how they think about mining Filecoin, where with mining other currencies like, you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum, as, you know, on a moment to moment basis, you can decide to mine or not based on the profitability at that moment. When you're thinking about Filecoin, you're really thinking about running a data storage business, like running the entirety of the business. And you're thinking about things on, you know, year timescales instead of, you know, day timescales. And so when you're looking at, you know, should I mine Filecoin, you're really thinking about the broader picture and deciding whether or not this, you know, longer term venture makes sense for you. And from what I've seen, the numbers for like, you know, profitability of Filecoin are actually quite good, which helps to balance out the, you know, additional commitment and additional cost that, you know, such an operation takes. Are there any particular like node specifications that make for a good Filecoin miner? Yeah, so there's a lot going on with the hardware requirements for mining Filecoin. The proofs in particular require you have, you know, GPUs, which isn't abnormal for a crypto miner, but you also need lots of storage, you need lots of RAM and very fast single core processors because there's a particular algorithm that's used to encode data to make it provable, this proof of replication. And this relies on what is effectively a VDF, a verifiable delay function, which is a mostly single-threaded process that encodes the data. You can't speed it up by parallelizing it. You know, the only way you can speed it up is by going fast. And this does significantly impact the actual configuration of the hardware because now you're not looking at you know a motherboard with a bunch of GPUs strung you know all across it with a bunch of fans trying to cool it down. You're looking at a very balanced setup of infrastructure where you, you're balancing a whole bunch of hard drives, you're balancing your flash storage, you're balancing 
the processors and the cooling of that. And then you also have the GPUs for the portions of the processes that that has. So running a Filecoin mining operation really looks a lot more like, you know, standard data center operations than, you know, what you might be used to seeing with the whole crypto mining shelves of GPUs idea. I'd like to zoom out and talk about the broader crypto ecosystem. We did a show recently on Arweave, and Arweave is one of the more promising storage protocols I've seen since Filecoin came out. There are other storage options as well. I think Ethereum has like a native, I don't, don't remember what it is, but the Ethereum has one. They had Swarm. Swarm. Did they deprecate it? I think it's been deprecated. I haven't seen anything in years. Okay. Anyway, so yeah, there's a variety of storage things. What's the spectrum of adoption like and, and use cases? And is it a competitive market? Is it a cooperative market? Can you use Arweave with IPFS somehow? Talk through the spectrum of storage options. Yeah, I don't follow a lot of the other decentralized storage protocols as much. They're not that big. Like last time I looked at Arweave, it had 20 terabytes of total usage, which is about what Filecoin onboards every 30 seconds, which I don't know, to me, that's just not super interesting. I really tend to pay attention to other storage options like you know, S3 or Cloudflare's, what they call it, D2 or something, where they have an S3-like storage offering that is significantly cheaper on the bandwidth. The space for decentralized storage, you know, providers, it's not super flourishing, I would say. There's really not a ton there, especially when you look at like how much data is actually being handled. You know, you have other, if you're just looking at, you know, blanket numbers, you see other things like Chia, Chia has a ton of storage attached to their network, but it's not actually used for storing anybody's files. So it's like a storage network in that it uses hard drives for its mining process, but it doesn't actually provide any data storage for end users. And aside from that, you have, you know, Arweave, which has a cool mechanism of you can send your data out in a transaction and put it literally on the blockchain, but it's, you know, kind of shown that it doesn't scale. It's very small in terms of actual raw storage capacity. And it serves some, you know, some niche use cases of if you want to put your JPEG on the blockchain, it seems like a reasonable way to do that. If, you know, it's pretty expensive, but, you know, if you're paying a million dollars for a JPEG, then you might as well pay a lot of money for that. But it doesn't actually hit scale. And I have seen people using IPFS and Arweave together where they address their data with IPFS and then store it on Arweave with the, you know, the hashing specified inside of the transaction somehow. And then there was, there was an Arweave node that made data available over IPFS out of Arweave. And that's like, that's interesting because it shows you that when you store your data with IPFS, you're really just showing a way of addressing it and not specifying how it's persisted. And the cool thing that that means is you can persist your data however you like, you know, as long as it's addressed by, you know, its CID through IPFS, you'll be able to use IPFS to fetch it regardless of, you know, what blockchain you end up putting it on or, you know, however else you end up storing it. I've seen people use S3 to store IPFS things, which is kind of weird, but it also makes sense where your IPFS is just shifting how the addressing happens and then the data can go wherever it wants. But that's kind of the breadth of that as I see it. What do you think is going to be 
the delineation between who uses centralized versus decentralized storage providers in the limit. I mean, you know, for many applications, like censorship is not really an issue, right. you know, so it's like, why would I even want to use decentralized storage? But obviously not universally the case. Yeah. So what's the delineation? Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest thing is decentralized or not, people just care about, you know, what am I getting and for how much money? And if decentralized storage networks can provide a better experience, whether in terms of price or performance or, you know, what have you, then people will use it. And I think they don't even need to know or care that it's decentralized. I do believe that with decentralized protocols, we can provide a strictly better experience than the centralized cloud providers can, especially on terms of when you look at costs of using S3 or most centralized cloud providers for storage, the storage itself, you know, it's, it is expensive when you look at like the cost of the underlying hard drives and how much it would actually cost to store that. But the real, you know, expense of storing on cloud architectures like this is the bandwidth. When you store your data on S3, you know, you pay a little bit of money to store it, but then you pay a lot of money to actually get the data out. And egress costs on Amazon are like very, very high. This is how Cloudflare has been able to move in with their storage option and, you know, use their CDN layer to actually cut costs way below what Amazon has been charging, which is super cool. I think that decentralized storage networks can actually take that even further, where since we're addressing data you know, we're using content addressing on the data. It doesn't matter where the content is served from. You can always verify that it's the data that you expect it to be, which means any edge node can cache it and serve it successfully. So the opportunity here for, you know, you saving on edge bandwidth and like just saving on the egress costs in general is pretty massive. So I think, you know, the short answer to your question is, no, people don't really care that it's decentralized. They just want a better product for less money. And I do think we can provide that. Do you have similar feelings between decentralized computation as you do about decentralized storage usage? Yeah, I think nobody has really done decentralized computation at scale. I think, you know, things like Ethereum, I would really not describe them as decentralized computation. Like you are, you know, doing computation in a decentralized network. But the key interesting thing there is that you're actually getting consensus on the result of running something. So the main thing like Ethereum provides is trustless, you know, computation, which is a pretty different thing than like generalized decentralized computation. I think, you know, there's been several groups that have tried to build actual decentralized computation. I think there was one called Truebit for a while, which was doing, you know, actual large amounts of computation and then certifying it on chain and, you know, doing all the right things to make sure that computation was correct. I don't know what actually ended up happening to them, but being able to do like, you know, large data center scale operations in a decentralized network is what I would actually call the centralized computation. And that we don't really have right now. And I think there's definitely room for that to exist, you know, with things like ZK snarks and a lot of these things like, you know, optimistic rollups are a very interesting way to do more higher scale computation, you know, in a decentralized manner. But yeah, I do think it kind of, once we even get there, it will come back to, well, is the cost benefit worth it? Is the price per performance there for people to at scale adopt this? And that's a whole part of the world that I don't actually know as much, you know, I don't have the same level of 
understanding of how it's going to work and how we can hit the same, you know, cost benefit trade off for that. Are there, I mean, you mentioned you don't take that much away from, you don't follow other protocols as closely, but are there ways that you look at other protocols for, for example, scalability concerns? Or, I mean, I guess IPFS doesn't seem to have the same scalability concerns as Ethereum does. I mean, yeah, we definitely look at and talk to and, you know, work with people in the Ethereum community and other communities quite a bit for the general scalability of Filecoin as a blockchain. You know, the scalability of the storage is a very different story than the scalability of the underlying like transaction processing network. And yeah, we definitely are paying attention to a lot of the space for how all of that's working. I think, you know, what Ethereum is doing with their scaling efforts and, you know, focusing on L2s and there's a ton of different projects out there that are working on scaling. And I think they're making a lot of really good progress. And we ourselves are just kind of, we have some efforts that are looking at how to scale the Filecoin blockchain. But I think, yeah, we're going to end up collaborating or working closely with other groups who have, you know, going that far already to figure that out. I think a lot of the work around layer twos and like ZK rollups in particular, I think are the really, that's the really fascinating direction that all of this should be going because it really ends up with fairly unlimited scalability, especially when you get into the land of having recursive snarks. The only question ends up being like, you know, how do you move between L2s? And that's where bottlenecks happen. But in terms of like raw ability to process transactions on the network, you can get it very high with a lot of these L2 type solutions. There are so many different currencies today. And I sometimes have a hard time parsing which ones actually have the most novel breakthroughs. You know, I look at Avalanche or any of the other newer ones. And I guess I'd like to get a sense from your perspective, are are there any breakthroughs in cryptocurrency development that like actual engineering breakthroughs that have stood out to you as being novel or actually being key to scalability or latency or yeah, where are the most novel engineering breakthroughs that you've seen in other systems? Yeah, I think definitely coming back to different zero knowledge proving systems and their ability to make very fast like ZK rollup type systems. That's in my mind, one of the most interesting things there. Also, there's been a bunch of work around very interesting ways of batching transactions. I remember a while ago, I read about this network called Grin, and I didn't really get too much into it, but I did you know, learn about how the actual scalability of it works. And they had a way of combining transactions, I believe combining transactions before even getting them into the block that allows it to, you know, run multiple transactions in the same cost as running one so that by the time you actually are processing the block you have this like bulk execution of many many state transitions all at the same time which i find like that sort of thing is really cool using you know different networks that are able to use like bls signature aggregation so changing the way that you sign your transactions such that the signatures can all be you know aggregated and verified at once also saves a lot of time and block validation because really what you're trying to do when you're scaling the throughput of you know a blockchain is you're trying to decrease validation time and 
the distinction there is you have the time it takes to create a block and then the time it takes to validate a block. And the validation ends up being the bottleneck because in order for the network to progress, everybody in the network has to receive the new block and they have to agree that it's correct. And you can do some really fun trade-offs where you put more work on the person creating the block to save time on the person who is verifying the block. And with this, for example, and you know, I think Mina is doing a lot of cool stuff here where the block producer is producing a zero knowledge proof of the correctness of the state transitions. And then the verifier is really just checking, I believe it's just a single snark. And so that shifts the way that the scalability of the system can happen pretty significantly. And, you know, that moves it into the scalability of that system is based on how many transactions can somebody produce a snark proof for in the allotted time that they have for making the block, which is a much larger time frame than they have for verifying the block. So yeah, the systems that are looking into the different ways of making these trade-offs and also looking into how to make layer twos more efficient on their networks, I think are definitely, you know, a lot of the most fascinating directions and in research into scalability. So as we begin to wind down, the basics of Filecoin have been in place for quite a few years at this point. Well, kind of. What has taken the longest? And I guess what's the focus right now? Yeah, I mean, what has taken the longest? I think there's a lot of things that seem easier than they end up being. And, you know, I think the proof system is one that has been you know, in progress for a very long time. And, you know, we have a set of a proof system that works, but it's, you know, it's suboptimal for a number of ways. It's, you know, more expensive to compute than it could be. It is slower to verify than it could be. And so we have a lot of effort looking into how do we make these proofs better, more efficient. And then, you know, there's a number of different characteristics that you can have on these proofs. And that's one of the things I find really interesting. The other thing that I mentioned earlier is, the VM work that we're doing, we're you know going to be shipping a full user programmable smart contracts platform on Filecoin that will be, as I understand it, allow both Wasm and EVM native code to run on it. And that's you know something we did intend to ship with the original launch of the network, but the complexity of building and deploying that was a lot more than we wanted to try and fit into the launch. And so that's been taking, you know, basically since launch, we've been focused on working on that and researching it. And I think that's slated to launch sometime this year, at least, you know, early versions of it. So really excited about that. And, you know, there's a number of other things that have been in progress, like scalability of the chain and different ways of potentially doing consensus. But, you know, it's an evolving, growing system, which is kind of a lot of fun to work on. What is the distinction between the research side of the company and the core company itself? I don't think there's a strict distinction. You know, we have a fairly large research team and we do a lot of exploration in the space through different things that aren't strictly, you know, the core, what we're focusing on Filecoin right now. There's a lot of exploratory work around consensus, you know, different types of consensus, different types of proving systems. There is a lot of research done on different ZK snark systems. Notably, we've been working on a Turing-complete zero-knowledge proof language called Lurk that you know will allow you to just write code and run it, and then at the end of running it, you get a ZK-SNARK proof that it was run correctly, which is a really fascinating concept that 
you could plug into, you know, a smart contract system. So a lot of our research is kind of things that will be useful or could be useful to the system in general. And we try to be pretty open about what we, you know, the space of things that we look into. And, you know, that generally feeds back into we research a thing, we find that it's really good and compelling and we should start adopting it. Then the research team will start working closely with the engineering team. And then they'll start to form more of a concrete plan and specification for what should be built. And then that group ends up, you know, taking that to the engineers who are on the ground and maintaining the software and helping them integrate that into the system and get it ready for deployment. And so we have a pretty good research to development pipeline that we've cultivated over the years. Cool. Well, it's been great talking to you and thanks for giving us an update on what's going on at Protocol Labs. Yeah, thank you.